As we walk into our sermon this morning, as we uh, transition over into our message for today, I want to remind us of what uh, we talked about last week. If you were with us last week, Pastor Brian introduced our new series that we've started in the letter called Titus. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to his friend and co-worker named Titus. It was addressed to a church in, on the island of Crete, and the issues that that church was going through and some of the problems that they were having, and Paul advising Titus to build a church with leaders that are people of character. And you may remember that when Pastor Brian was talking about it last week, about how we need to be people of character in order to accomplish the mission and the purpose that God has called us to. Today we'll be continuing that message in many ways. We'll be continuing in the book of Titus chapter 1. So if you want to grab a Bible from the pews in front of you, you're certainly welcome to do that. We'll be in Titus chapter 1 today. But before we get to that, I wanted to uh, share with you a little, bit, uh, a little bit of a story. I would never consider myself a handy person. I've never been one of those people that really go around fixing things or really know how to fix things. It's only in the last few years where I've become a little more handy. I've learned how to use a hammer, a screwdriver, and a drill. So I, think, I feel like I'm a little more handy. But I've also learned to use the most important tool that anyone can ever learn to use when it comes to home repair, and that tool is duct tape. This is my fix-all for everything. If it's broken, use duct tape. Now, it's interesting to me because I've become so good at this, to use this to fix things, that I look at it this way. If it can't be fixed with duct tape, then you're not using enough duct tape, is the way I look at it. <laughs> duct tape fixes everything. It holds everything together. It makes things look like they're brand new. In fact, I recently broke the side view mirror on my car, and guess what I used to fix it? Not the dealership, duct tape. It worked a lot better. So it's one of these things that has become a fix-all. Now, Recently, I was reading that duct tape uh, was studied by a gentleman named Max Sherman. Max Sherman is an environmental engineer. He studies the <clears throat> ways to make buildings and cities more energy efficient and more environmentally friendly. And so as Max Sherman was studying major buildings in major cities, he was trying to find a way to make sure that uh, we're not wasting energy, so wasting heating and air conditioning, to make sure that duct work was very safe. And so as Max Sherman was studying this, he studied dozens of different ways that ducts are sealed. He found all the different adhesives that are used, and he studied every one to find out which ones are the most energy efficient and which ones are the least energy efficient. And after all his research was done, Max Sherman ultimately discovered that of all the adhesives that he studied, Every one of them are very good at keeping energy secure and safe inside ducts, except for one, duct tape. <laughs> it was the only one that didn't do its job. Now, let's think about this for a second. Duct tape should be able to hold a duct together, but it was the one thing it could not hold was air coming through a duct. In fact, Sherman found out it, of all the things that, that secured a duct, Duct tape was the worst thing you could use because it was the least energy efficient. In other words, it had a name, but it did not live up to the name that it was professing. And this is what we're going to talk about today as we learn about Titus and the church in Crete. If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to that letter, the letter of Titus, the letter to Titus, chapter 1, 
And I'll be reading from verses 10 through 16. You can follow on the screen right behind me. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. As we learned last week, in Titus and in the church in Crete, there was a problem. The problem was that all kinds of different ideas and doctrines were coming into the church, and people were getting confused. They did not know what to believe or whom to believe. There were all different voices speaking at the same time, and Paul was reminding Titus, appoint leaders within the church, appoint people in your lives that will be steadfast in the truth, that will hold on to sound doctrine, that will preach the good news the way it was meant to be preached. And you remember last week when we talked about character, that was one of the ultimate goals and aims is to live lives that glorify God with our character. But as we come to the second half of Titus chapter 1, there is a new section. Whereas last week we were talking about the types of people you should follow, this week we'll be talking about the types of people you should not follow. And there are three specific areas we're going to break it down into, but most importantly, we're going to look at this simple idea, that what are the voices that you are listening to, so who are the voices you are listening to, and what is the voice that you are projecting onto the world? So what are the voices you are listening to, and what are the voices you are projecting out onto the world? Another way to look at it, who's influencing you, and how are you influencing others? Oftentimes in the world around us, we assume that the biggest threat to our faith comes from outside. We assume that uh, atheists are the biggest threat to Christianity. But let me remind you, atheism has been around since the beginning of time. Atheism is an opportunity. It's not necessarily an opponent. It's an opportunity for the Christian. Sometimes we think that politicians who pass laws that hurt Christians are our biggest threat. Now, that can be a threat, but it's not our biggest threat. It's an opportunity again. Oftentimes, the biggest threat facing the church comes from within, from internal sources, not necessarily external sources. Paul reminds Titus that in your church, in your community, in your individual life, watch out for voices that don't match up to what God wants you to do. Watch out for people who say things, do things, or believe things that might be outside of what the Word of God says or outside of sound doctrine and sound teaching. 
So the first of the three areas that we want to focus on, when we talk about people we don't want to follow and people we don't want to become, the first thing we're going to look out for is wrong words. Wrong words. This is an area that all of us should be on our guard for. People who speak wrong words and we ourselves speaking wrong words. Now what does that look like? In, in the church in Crete, Paul, uh, Paul says specifically to Titus, he says like this, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those within your group. There are mere talkers and deceivers. Can we be deceived by what we hear? How do we know that what we hear is true? How do you know that what I'm saying is true? How do we know that when Pastor Brian comes up here or Pastor Rick is here and we're speaking to this congregation that what we're saying is true? Paul reminds not only in the church in Crete, but all the churches he writes to, you've got to know the truth in order to know if the truth is being spoken to you. You've got to spend time learning the word of God to understand sound doctrine so that when it is spoken to you, you will recognize whether it is true or whether it is not. Here's what often happens in the society we live in today. One of two things will happen. We'll either add to the gospel or we'll take away from the gospel when we present it to people. And each of us has to be on the lookout for when that is happening to us. What does it look like when people add to the gospel? It's something we call gospel plus. Sometimes you might know of it as legalism. This idea of you have to accept Christ as your savior and then do a bunch of other things in order to be saved, where we add to the good news of Jesus that we are saved by more than, just, more than just the grace of God. And that sort of looking at things in the way of adding on to the gospel becomes this gospel plus that can sometimes become very good sounding in our ears, but ultimately deceives us from what is the truth. Anytime you take away from what Christ did on the cross for our salvation, you're ultimately adding and bringing the the, the goal or the ultimate purpose of salvation back to yourself and taking away from the work of God. If we ever add anything to the gospel, that can be deceptive. That can be trickery. That can lead us away from what God ultimately desires from us. But what about when we subtract from the gospel? What if we take away from Scripture? And there are many today who do the same thing, who will take away from Scripture and ultimately mislead people. Some people will say that the Bible is a mechanism for you to live your best life right now, your your total life, to enjoy life the best, to be the happiest you can be. That's what the Bible is for. But when someone says that, they're sometimes taking away from what the Bible is ultimately for, that the Bible is the story of God's love for us and his redemption story for us and how he loved us enough to die for us and take away our sins. That's ultimately what the Bible is about. So when we subtract from the word or when we add to the word, we are ultimately deceiving ourselves and deceiving those around us. So wrong words are the first thing that we need to be on the lookout for. Secondly, we need to be on the lookout for wrong motives. Wrong motives. Sometimes people will speak into our lives, and we have to ask ourselves, who are the voices in our lives? Who are the spiritual voices and forces in our lives that are speaking to our hearts, speaking to us with advice or recommendations on life? And what are they saying to us, and are their motives pure? 
Paul tells Titus, make sure that when you or the elders or anyone in your community is speaking to the people, that their motives are right, that they are not speaking out of selfish gain, that there is no money or fame or power that's motivating what they're saying. There's no self-reward that they're seeking in the process. Now, these deceivers, these wrong people to follow can come in many fashions. They can be very blatant or they can be very subtle. Now, sometimes you've seen it. You've seen the headlines. You've seen the ones of televangelists, for example, or people who are on television maybe selling a product and telling you, if you buy this or if you send us $25 to this ministry, we will send you a couple of pieces of fabric or some special oil or some special water, and that will somehow save your family or help you. And in many ways, and I hope it's blatant to all of us, that they are sometimes deceiving. Now, please don't get me wrong. Not everyone who's on television or who's, who's, who's got a ministry is, is doing something like that. But we have to be on our lookout for what the motive is. In fact, just this past week, you may have seen a, um, a televangelist was, was arrested this past week. This high-living North Carolina prosperity gospel pastor indicted for bilking church in massive tax fraud, tax fraud scam. And when you see it, we sitting here away from that situation might say, oh, how do they not know? It must have been so obvious that somewhere along the line, that gentleman decided that I will, I will fool and deceive and, and, and rob this church of money and resources so that I can line my own pockets. And you see scandal after scandal sometimes erupt with situations like this. And I want to be honest again. These are by far the exception, not the rule. So please don't assume that this is how everyone is. But this is why, again, we have to test everything to see what the motives are in a person's heart as they come out with what they're saying. Paul wrote to Titus and told him, you live in a culture. You live in a culture where people, and he specifically speaks about the Cretan culture. And he says, the culture of Crete is such that people are acting a certain way. He calls them lazy, lying gluttons. Not the most appealing way to talk about another culture, but that's what he calls them. In fact, he uses the words of one of their own prophets to say that's how those people are. But let's take a look at the culture that, that Titus was living in. The culture that Titus was living in was a culture that was antithetical to the gospel. It was against the good news of Jesus Christ. They weren't really living a culture that put Christ first or put the gospel first. And as a result, Titus had to work in that type of a culture. Let me read a quote. The quote goes like this. Living the good life of the gospel is always a challenge when we live in a wider culture that defines the good life in other ways. It is particularly hard in a culture where newspapers cannot be trusted and politicians are corrupt, a harsh selfish, racist culture in which there is a fear of crime, a culture where people are reluctant to do manual work, which is therefore left to other workers, a culture in which people routinely overeat. And that was the culture of first century Crete. Sounds kind of familiar, if you ask me. It sounds very familiar. That was a quote from a gentleman named Chester who said, if you look at the culture of Crete, it was very similar to the culture of the United States in 21st century America. We have problems, and sometimes those problems and the solutions that we've come up with in America creep into the church, and the advice all looks the same. We start to say things like, hey, do what makes you happy. It sounds good, doesn't it? But is that ultimately what the gospel teaches us? 
Sometimes we'll hear things like, God wants you to be happy, or God won't give you more than you can handle. Sometimes you'll hear things like, we're all God's children, so we've got to make sure everyone feels like they're one of God's children. We'll say things that sound good, but sometimes we don't dig deep into what we're actually saying, because what we're doing is we're living in a culture, and the culture sometimes influences what we say. Think about some of the things we value in our culture today. Materialism individualism. We value happiness. We value inclusion. We value self-ambition. And all of those things sound good, but ultimately, are they what God calls us to do with the way that we live our lives? In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says like this, these people draw near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Here's what it all ultimately boils down to. When we have wrong words and wrong motives, we separate ourselves even further from what God wants to do in our lives. And so he purposely wants us to have right motives and right words when we minister and when we're being ministered to. So I ask you today, can you take a minute to think through your life about the areas of your life where you're listening to other people? What is the advice that you're receiving from those other people? Does that advice match up with what the gospel is saying? And if it doesn't, there needs to be some sort of a fixing in that relationship, whether it's you breaking free and not listening to those people or you going back with what you know to be the truth. Wrong words and wrong motives lead to the third problem, wrong actions. Wrong actions. Titus 10 verse 16 says like this, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. I'm sure you know people like this. The people who have a lot of God talk, but very little God life. The people who can talk a good game about God, who can sound very religious and sound very spiritual, but ultimately their lives don't match up to what they're saying. And the highest calling that we have as a church in bringing glory to God is to make sure that our words and our actions match up. That what we say matches up with what we do and how we live every day matches up with the gospel that we preach. Because if there is a disconnect between our words and our actions, if there is a disconnect between what we say and what we do, then it's not just us that's affected. It's the glory of God that's affected. It's God's kingdom that's affected if there's a disconnect between the two. I've spoken to many friends and many colleagues who've said they left the church or they turned their backs on God because they saw the way someone else lived who proclaimed to know God. And I'm sure all of us know people like that. That we turn against God because someone else didn't live the way that they preached they lived. And that simple disconnect between what we say and how we live can be crippling when it comes to winning people for the kingdom of God. What we say has to match with what we do. A couple of years ago, when I was uh, traveling for work, I went to Washington, D.C. for work. And I was there for a couple of days, staying in a hotel. And I remember this very clearly, that walking into the hotel, and it's one of D.C.'s most famous hotels, walked in right at the front counter where you check in, there was a sign. The sign read, your perfect stay is our only mission. Sounds pretty good. Your perfect stay is our only mission. The words were excellent. Now let me tell you about my stay at that hotel. 
So the first day went by, no problem, busy day at work, went to sleep in my hotel room, no problem at all, woke up the next day, went to work, and then came back home, came back to my hotel room for the second night. Walk into my room, put, put the key card in, walk into the room, and the first thing I notice is that the lights are on and the television is on. I'm thinking, wait, something's not right here. I definitely did not leave the lights on or the television on. I walk further into the hallway and into the room, and I turn and look at my bed, and there's a man sleeping in my bed. A man with no shirt, by the way, I should add that too, <laughs> sleeping in my bed. Now, he's watching television and not moving at the fact that another person has just walked into the room that he's in, and I don't know what to do when there's a person in my bed in the room that I'm supposed to stay in. I immediately check the number on the door. I look at my key card. I'm looking everywhere, and sure as day, there's my luggage and my stuff sitting on the other bed in that room. And I'm thinking to myself, what happens next now? Does someone come out of the bathroom and kill me? Or does, does someone rob me? What happens next? Is there a camera that's going to pop out recording my reaction to this moment? But nothing happens. And to me, that was even weirder that this gentleman's not even reacting to anything I'm doing in the room that he's now sleeping in. And so I start to ask him questions, and it became pretty clear that he did not speak English. That made it even more fun. And so over the next couple of minutes, I'm telling him that this is my room, and he's saying, okay, use the other bed. And I'm saying, there is no way that I'm using the other bed while you're sleeping in this room. And so I knew something was wrong. There was a disconnect here. Something is not right. Went downstairs, and I went to the front desk, and I came with a pretty common complaint, I'm sure. There's someone else in my bed. It was my complaint that day. And I walk up to this lady at the front desk, and she says, Sir, you booked your room. There should be no one else except one of your guests. And I said, Listen, I know exactly who's supposed to be in that room. Me and no one else. There's someone else in that room. And, and she repeats again, Sir, there's nothing we can do about it. I said, Wait, can we figure this out? What's going on at this moment? Something's happening. And so I said, Can we have that gentleman come down, and we can maybe figure this out together? And she says, there's no one else booked in that room. You're the only person booked in that room. And this dance goes back and forth. And I'm telling her, look, there's no way this is going to go on this way. Something's got to change. And all along while I'm talking, there's that sign that says, your perfect stay is our only mission. And so this goes back and forth for a while. This is what it turned out to be. It turned out that the gentleman in that room was a diplomat from Panama, the nation of Panama. He was scheduled to stay in a room with a gentleman that he did not know. So that's the reason why he thought it was me. He was scheduled to stay in that room with a gentleman with the first name Joseph. My last name is Joseph. We've had this conversation before. <laughs> Very confusing. And so he was scheduled to stay in that room. That's, that's what, what the problem was. But the problem was also that this hotel double booked the room was the problem. And because they double-booked the room, there was all kinds of confusion, all kinds of problems. And here was the solution that they came up with when everything was figured out. Mind you, this is hours later by the time they figured this out. Their solution was, sir, we don't have another room. Why don't you just share the room with him? Which I, I said, no, I don't think I'd rather not do that. My next option was, can, I, can you just put me in another room? And their, op their response was, we don't have any other rooms. Their third option was, we have a broom closet that we can put a cot in, if you would like. And so then I responded to that, you know, I think I probably should go to another hotel at this point. And so after a little while, after a couple of hours, they eventually found me a little cot that they put in an office, and then I slept in the cot in the office that night. Now here's their slogan, your perfect stay is our only mission, but that's not really what happened in reality. 
And oftentimes when that happens, there's going to be a disconnect. Now, will I ever trust what that hotel says again? No, because what they did did not match up to what they said. And as a result, I do not trust them anymore. Now, think about what that looks like if you are a person who doesn't follow Jesus. And there's this group of people who proclaim to know Jesus but their lives don't match up with what they proclaim. There is no way that they're trusting us for anything that we say. And Paul reminds Titus, everything you say must be matched up with what you do, and everything you do must match up with what you say, and that's the only way we can lead people closer to Jesus Christ. He says there are people who proclaim to know God, but with their actions, they deny him. But with their actions... They deny him. I love how it says it, it says it like this in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 12. Set an example for the believers in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faithfulness, and in your purity. As a prisoner of the gospel, Paul again saying, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Before we close today, I want us to make sure that we all have an opportunity to look through our lives, to take an inventory. Is there any part of my life that I live that doesn't match up with what I say? I'll tell you, this is one of the most convicting things I've ever had to say to myself. It's tough. Is there something in the way I live that does not match up with what I preach and what I say and who I represent here on this earth? Does there, is there something that would prohibit someone from knowing God fully because of the way I lived. Because they looked at me and said, you know what, he talks a big game, but his actions don't match up with what he's saying. If that's the case in any of our hearts, this is an opportunity for us to try to fix that area of our lives, to ask the Lord to help fix that part of our lives. If our words and our actions don't match up, there's a disconnect that takes glory away from God, something that we have to be so careful with. A couple of weeks ago, we had the end of the semester over at BU, and it's a wonderful celebratory time where the semester is done, the students get to go home, the professors get to do whatever professors do when we're, when we're done with classes, but we get to rejoice because the term is done. But one thing that I didn't recognize before I began teaching was that the last couple of weeks of the semester turn out to be some of the worst weeks of the semester because of something called grade complaining, which happens a lot at the end of the semester. Students get their grades a couple of days after the semester ends, and then they start sending emails to have teachers up their grades, to somehow artificially inflate their grade. And some of these are very entertaining, by the way. Some of these emails, and I'd love to read some to you, but... I think I'd be breaking some sort of rule if I did that. Here's what happens. They'll send you a note, and the note will say, Professor, I deserve such and such grade because I worked really hard, or I had good intentions, or my mother and father raised me well, or whatever the reason is. I deserve a better grade. And I'll tell you also, almost never is it one of the better students that does that. It's almost always the student that's struggling to begin with that will send you a note like that. And then I'll look back through my notes and through my grading and, and look through all of my stuff and I'll say back to that student, look, you missed class regularly. And when you did show up, you were minutes or hours sometimes late to class. You handed in assignments late all the time. Sometimes you didn't hand in assignments at all. You were constantly showing me with your actions 
much more than the words you're sending me at the end of the semester. You are showing me with your actions that you do not take this course seriously or you do not take the work seriously or you just don't get it. If that's what you're showing me, I'm going to go with what you're showing me every single time over what you're saying to me at the end of the semester. All of us have to recognize that the world around us sees us first, hears us second. Do you guys understand? They see us first and hear us second. They are trying to discover what is it that they really believe. And I don't want to hear it, I want to see it. And if our lives don't match up to what we're saying, there is going to be a disconnect that takes glory away from God. When my dad was retiring from work a couple of years ago, I remember at his retirement party at, that his workplace threw him. He worked in the same little office for 37 or so years. He worked in the same place. And at the end of 37 years, his coworkers all stood up one by one and were saying things about him. Now, my dad's not a very talkative person. He's not a very uh, extroverted person. But every one of them reminded my dad and, and his family and all those who were there for this party. They said, he was, we never saw him angry. We never saw him curse. We never saw him worry. And as a result, we believed everything he said. He lived out his faith every day. So in, to the point where he didn't worry when he was at the workplace. So whenever he talked to his coworkers about this God who takes care of problems, his life reflected that. He wasn't worrying in front of them. He wasn't condemning himself constantly with, oh, how am I going to get through this? What am I going to do about this? He trusted God, and his coworkers saw it. He wasn't cursing constantly at the workplace. In fact, that was one of those things that his coworkers kept saying, that, we never cursed at the workplace because we were afraid of him. We were afraid of offending him. They changed their ways because of the influence he had on them. This is what it looks like when you live a life a certain way that matches with what you preach, with what you say. That's where people start to say, look, I need to change a little bit. I need to understand where this is coming from so that I can live that same way as well. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. This morning, I want to ask us all this simple question. What are the voices that we're listening to? Are they full of wrong words, wrong motives, and wrong actions? Or are they right words, right motives, right actions? But at the same time, what is the voice that we are preaching to the world through? Is it through actions that don't match up with our words? Or is it through actions that reinforce our words every single day? They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Every day when we do not live a life that's worthy of the calling that's been given to us, it detracts away from the glory of God. 2010, uh, Thanksgiving time, do you remember when Tiger Woods went through his huge scandal? It was Thanksgiving weekend. He has a car accident. And one of the courses I teach is a class called Crisis Management and Communication. And so we analyze the life and marketability of Tiger Woods a lot. If you're not familiar with Tiger Woods, when he was at the peak of his career, he was considered the most marketable human being on earth. The most marketable human being on earth. Companies were spending tens of millions of dollars to have him endorse their products. But as soon as that thing that happened the weekend of Thanksgiving in 2010, and as soon as his extramarital affair started becoming common knowledge and public information, the loss that he took was tremendous. But the loss that the companies who, they, who used him as an endorser 
also took a massive significant loss. In fact, we've studied this, and, and, and University of California Davis studied this for an extended period of time and found that the companies that, that used Tiger Woods as an endorser lost around $12 billion in the first year after the scandal. $12 billion in brand value because of one scandal. Why did that happen? If you think about it, one guy's affair should not necessarily affect my purchase decision, if you think about it. But here's what was really happening. There was an image that Tiger Woods was professing. There was an image of who he is as a person and as an athlete that he was professing. When his actions did not match up with that image, there was a disconnect that caused people to react. And this is what happens with the kingdom of God as well. When we have an image that does not match up with our actions, there's a disconnect that causes people to not trust God anymore. It's not just that they don't trust us. They trust God less. And because of that, we impact the kingdom of God. So this morning, as we take a couple of minutes in prayer, I want us to think about the areas of our lives where we have disconnected from God through our actions, where we cause other people to disconnect from God because of her actions. Ask yourself the question, does my life lead people to God? Does my life serve as a magnet that attracts people to God? Or does my life push people away from God? Let your life point people to Jesus. This morning, you have an opportunity to decide, am I going to listen to wrong words and wrong motives and wrong actions? And at the same time, am I going to live with wrong words, wrong motives, and wrong actions? Because when they come together, when right words, right motives, and right actions come together, the result is amazing. I just read this past week that in just a few years, China will become the most Christian nation in the world meaning it will have the most Christians in one country. Can you imagine even thinking that about 20 years ago or 30 years ago, maybe even 40 or 50 years ago? Would it have even been possible? Because what happens when people live right words, right actions, right motives together is the results are tremendous together. I always remember this one specific case, and I'll close with this. Back in 2007, I had an opportunity to go on a short-term missions project to India. And while we were there, in a, uh, in, we were in northwestern India. And one night, my uncle and I, we were going from village to village and meeting with these small little house churches and encouraging them and finding out their needs and trying to help them wherever we could. One night while we were traveling, it was late, late at night, and we came up to a church, a small church building. And we thought we would sleep there for the night. We would just rest there, and then the next morning we would continue our journey. It was too dark. It's in the middle of the wilderness. It's very hard to drive there. So we walk up to the front of this church, and to our amazement, there were people already sleeping on the front of the church. Now, it is complete darkness. There's no way we could see who was there or if, if there were people or animals. We didn't know. We just walked up, and we felt some people there. The people rose, and they started to talk to us. It turned out there were about six or seven people that were all sleeping on the front steps of that church. Now, the story I'm about to tell you is something that I will never forget. The, the thing that makes it even more compelling to me is that I can't tell you anything visually. It was complete darkness. Everything I'm about to tell you was heard through a complete lens of darkness. 
One of the gentlemen rose and he started to tell us about how they got to that church that night. Now, my uncle was able to understand his language, so he translated what this gentleman was saying. This gentleman uh, was from a, a state on the far eastern part of India, and so he'd traveled all the way to the western part at this point. And this gentleman said that he was living at his home with his two brothers. So three young men were living in one little hut together. And every day after they became Christians, so they became Christians about a year earlier, every day after they became Christians, a group of men are known as the Naxalites. And if you're not familiar with that term, they're a group of radical communists in India, and they're highly, highly opposed to any religion from the West. Very highly opposed to that. And they persecute people. They would come to their door every day and ask them to denounce Jesus and once again take up the, the banner of India and take up the banner of communism to abandon Jesus every day. But these three young men would say, we will not do it. No matter what you do to us, we will not abandon our faith. This kept going on for days and days until one night the Naxalites came to their door with, with fire on, on, on sticks and on torches and they came to their door, banged on the door saying, come out right now. If you do not deny Jesus, we will execute all of you right here, right now. The three brothers snuck under the, 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 uh, the, the straw in their hut, snuck under it through the back and ran into the forest. These Naxalites started to chase these men into the forest. The three brothers were quickly separated because of how fast that they had to run. One brother stayed with another brother, but the, uh, the third brother went off by himself. As they are running, they, are, they know these might be the last moments of their lives, but they also knew they would not deny Jesus in any way. They believed that unless our words and our actions match up, none of it really matters. What happens next is pretty gruesome, but I, I should tell you this is what happens next. The Naxalites chase the men into the forest, and the Naxalites are known for being expert archers. They use bows and arrows to hunt, and they use bows and arrows in the wilderness a lot. And they started to hunt the men with bows and arrows until one of them was running through the forest and was suddenly pinned up against a tree through an arrow by an arrow that pinned him up against the tree. The third brother saw this entire thing happening and had to make a decision. Do I save my brother or do I run at this point? He tried his best to remove the arrow, but he could not, and he just kept running, knowing his brother was going to die on that tree. He separated from his other remaining brother, and they, and they ran into the forest. For three days, he slept inside the hollow of a tree until the men had stopped searching through the forest. And he finally escaped. He finally found a few supplies that he could gather, and he started walking west. Now, mind you, it was about a 1,000-mile journey that he'd already made across the nation, walking away from the state that he originally came from. He was sleeping on the steps of that church because he knew a church. This is a safe place. I'll come and sleep here that night. He found another group of Christians at that same time, and they were all sleeping on those steps that night. He was telling us that night that I have never seen my brother, my surviving brother since then. I don't know what happened to him, and I miss him every single day. And when my uncle asked him a simple question... Would you do it again? Would you just deny Christ the next time? And he said, never. He said, if my actions and my words don't match up, then I have nothing. I do not have a witness. Can you imagine the pressure that man was under? He was going to lose his family, lose his own life, but he would not deny Jesus with his words or with his actions. He would not deny Christ. And sometimes I think about myself and the simple ways I deny Jesus through my life every day. Some of the, the, the foolish things I do, the things that I think, the things that I say that deny Christ every single day. 
This morning as we gather together in worship, this is the question for each of us. Does my life reflect what I preach? Do my words and my actions match up? And if they don't, maybe today is a chance for us to address that. I'm going to invite Lynn and the worship team to come forward as we close out in worship today. What voices are you listening to today? Do these voices come with the right words, the right motives, and the right actions? Are you being influenced by people who are solidly based on the truth, or are you letting every voice within the culture influence you? And just as importantly, I remind us today, what is the voice that we are preaching to the world with? If our words and our actions don't match up, then we do not have a witness. All we have is empty words that will lead people astray down the road. Do your actions and do your words match up. As we spend some time in worship and as we spend time reflecting on this sermon today, ask yourself, does my life reflect what I profess? Does my life reflect what I proclaim? Because as Paul reminded Titus, there are plenty of people who claim to know God with their actions, they deny him. Lord, I don't want to be a person that proclaims you with my mouth, but with my actions deny you. I want to be a person that proclaims you with my mouth and proclaims you with my actions, that anyone who sees me and anyone who hears me would know the same Jesus reigns in my life. That's what I want happening. Let's bow our heads, and as we pray today, In just a few minutes, you'll have an opportunity to respond to today's message as well. If you kept the Connect card that was passed out as you walked in this morning, there's an opportunity there for you to check off uh, if if, if you'd like to know more about God or if something today has, has compelled you to give your heart to Jesus or if there's anything that we can be praying for you about or anything that you would like to communicate with us please don't hesitate to write it down on those cards. In just a few minutes, you'll have an opportunity to drop it in the buckets that come by. But this morning, before we leave, let's ask ourselves the question, what does my voice look like? What does my voice sound like? Heavenly Father, we come before you today giving you thanks and praise for all that you are doing in our lives. God, when you went to the cross, your words and your actions matched perfectly. The love that you preached was the love that you showed. God, I ask for your forgiveness for my life, for the areas where I know my actions don't match up with my words. I pray that I would live a life that proclaims you with my words and proclaims you with my actions. And I pray for every one of my friends here today. Let our lives preach the gospel. Let our words preach the gospel. Let us never deny you with what we say or with what we do. Lord, I pray for every person here today who is struggling through life, whether it be through sickness or a worry or an anxiety or an emotional pain, for all the brokenhearted that are in this room right now, for those who are worried about the future, who have fear about tomorrow, who are worried about a job, who are worried about education, who are worried about family, who are worried about a significant other. God, I pray right now that you would flood our hearts with your peace, that we would feel your presence in a new and a profound way today, Lord God. 
that our words and our actions would match up and that our words and our actions would lead people closer to you, Lord God. We give you all the glory and honor. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.